Well, it's so good to be with you. Um, my name is Phil Pearson. I'm the ministry director here at St. Pete's. And as um, everyone has said, it is Advent today, which is so exciting. Um, so let's dive in. Uh, about a week and a half ago, I was at the mall doing a little bit of shopping. And I'm one of those terrible people that has my headphones in on noise-canceling mode, so I can't hear anything in the world around me. And I was wandering through the mall, completely unaware of what was going on. But for just a moment, I took out a headphone, and what filled my ears was a little horrifying. Christmas music was playing in the mall in the middle of November. And this was like November 10th. Like, I get it now, it's getting close, but this was pre-American Thanksgiving, but the carols were already playing, the fahudores were being played in the mall, and so they earwormed themselves into my head, and then I was humming to myself Christmas music. I turned off my podcast, and I began to sing fahudore on the way back from the mall. And then I got in my office, I sat down, and my good friend Rob um, who I realize is supposed to take kids out, grades four to sixes are supposed to go out. <laughs> I, I'm sitting in my office, and Rob pokes his head in my office, and he goes, there was a missile strike in Poland, and they think it might have been Russia. And luckily it wasn't, but I, I suddenly began going down this whole rabbit hole train, reading tweets, watching YouTube videos, trying to find out what just happened, what's going on in our world. And the carols in my mind stopped, and I suddenly remembered there's war in the Ukraine. We're singing Christmas carols in the mall while war is going on across the world. We're setting up decorations while women in Iran cry out for freedom and for a voice. And in our own city, we, we shop for the holidays while homelessness and a drug endemic fills our streets. And these two diametrically opposed realities are our normal reality every day. And I see two ways that our culture tends to respond. Either we go the way of Ebenezer Scrooge, we say bah humbug, we bemoan the holidays, we say they shouldn't exist, um, we bemoan the corruption, the capitalism, the consumerism, we say that since there is war and other places, we should just cancel Christmas, nobody gets to celebrate. But on the other hand, we bury our heads in the snow. We look into the blinding lights of the tree to not see the realities of the world around us. We either go for blatant, over-the-top optimism to just not be aware of what's going on in the world, or nihilistic pessimism. We let all the weight of the world bury ourselves. But are these really the two options to get through Christmas and life in general, just blatant optimism or total pessimism, I tend to fall into pessimism. But I don't think that is at all the call of the Christian faith. I think the Christian faith calls us to a different way of living. It calls us to hope in the darkness. And so for these next several weeks here at St. Pete's, we're going to walk the Advent path. We are going to live as Advent people, people between two moments. And what we're going to do in order to walk this path is we're going to have multiple voices, Isaiah, Mary, John, and ultimately Jesus, be our guides through Advent. Because Advent is a time when we look at the seriousness of the world. We don't sugarcoat. There's no fahu dores, no who's its or what's its. We look at the pain and the struggle and the darkness, but we don't let it bury us. And not simply because we say everything will be all right in the end. No, we acknowledge all the pain. But we say God is still here. 
And it's been such a joy to, to enter into this Advent season to seek to find hope in the midst of the darkness. So will you let these voices be our guides for the next couple weeks? I'll take the silence as a yes. I'm going to start this week with Isaiah. And if you're familiar with Isaiah or not familiar with Isaiah, Isaiah is a very large book of prophecy or written by a prophet. It's 66 chapters long. It takes roughly four hours and 17 minutes to read, um, as I learned this past week. And it is this wild book of hope and judgment at the same time. Um, So I'm going to briefly kind of talk about its themes talk about some kind of moments in it and lead to Isaiah giving us hope. Because I believe that Isaiah is speaking from a moment of darkness and yet he is speaking with so much hope that we need. But let's first ask the question, what is a prophet? Because maybe that sounds a little bit odd. If you're anything like me, when you hear the word prophet, you kind of think through a Disney lens, someone whose eyes clear over, they look up and see a fantastic vision, much like That's So Raven. Uh, You may think of kind of the cartoonish Disney prophets of just someone who's looking into a crystal ball or a pond. They see a dark and cryptic message about the future or the person you'll marry. But that is not quite the case with biblical prophets. Biblical prophets are calling out. They speak directly to the nation of Israel or to kings and people ruling it, and they they foretell a word from God. Their goal is to bring about trust and repentance in God and say how God is working in their moment. Uh, One biblical, uh, biblical scholar, he describes prophets as people who foretell, bring forth a word instead of foretell. And there are moments, as we're going to see, where they look ahead and they speak about what God is going to do. But more than anything, they're trying to address the current moment and give it hope as well as lead it to repentance. And Isaiah is one such prophet. He's speaking to a very specific moment. And he is bringing a very interesting word to the people of Israel because his main thrust of his message is judgment is coming, but hope is also on the way. He says that the Assyrians are going to come. They're going to defeat and overtake Israel. They're going to end the line of kings as they know it. And life as Israel has known for the past generations is coming to an end. Which is a pretty heavy message. (laughs) But the things that are happening to him are all an act of divine judgment. But divine judgment, I'm sure, brings up a a little bit of uncomfortability for us in the 21st century. We don't like to hear that. So how can we think of divine judgment? Well, let's talk about climate change. And this is probably a hot-button issue, and my dad's watching at some point and will be upset with me. But anyways, if you've lived in Vancouver for the past five years, you've experienced a number of once-in-a-lifetime events. We experienced a heat dome in which several, several hundred people passed away from. We experienced an atmospheric river that caused massive floods throughout the interior. Every summer, we just have smoke season, where just a cloud of smoke comes up from the forest fires to blanket our city, making it very hard for people like me with asthma to breathe. And I still choose to bike in it, which is terrible. But these these once-in-a-lifetime events just keep happening. And we we could say, well, they're just random. They're just happening. There's no reason or rhyme why they occur. Or, if we look at climate change, we could point our fingers at ourselves. We could point it at our parents. 
at their parents. We could point it at the corporations that we buy from, the lack of political movement and reduction. We could go through a laundry list of reasons why the world is the way it is. So am I saying climate change is an act of divine judgment? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, because we are reaping the effects of our impact on the weather system that God has given us. The way we act breaks covenant with nature, and thus we reap those effects. Pollution is a generational, corporate, and individual sin against the environment. And what we experience now is, to that extent, a divine judgment. And maybe that sits uncomfortably with many of us, but I think that this is actually what Isaiah is pointing at. He's saying these moments are going to come. The Assyrians, this world superpower is going to come and fight against you. But he blames it on Israel being unfaithful in their covenant to God. Because they did not follow in their covenant with God, these things are going to happen. And that can be tough, but that's what this prophet is pointing to. He says things like this, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, you earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Or later in that first chapter, he says, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. I mean, that sounds pretty familiar to today, but Isaiah is looking at his people, his country, he's giving them an indictment, and he's saying corruption exists on all levels of society. Hatred and violence exist everywhere. You are envious and spiteful and bitter and petty and unforgiven, and you have not followed the ways of God. And now you're going to reckon with that broken covenant that you had chosen to make with God. And that can be tough to read a book like Isaiah, but I think we need that because we live in moments in our world that are filled with darkness. We look around and our world is filled with violence. We can simply and easily say the world is not right as it is. And yet, Isaiah has hope. God is going to work in this, redeem his people, bring about salvation through all of this. And I want to look to Isaiah and ask this question, what is the hope he has, what is the source of it, and what does it lead us to do? So if you would like, turn with me to Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 7. I'm going to read through the passage one more time. Um, and we're going to examine this passage and be asking the question, what is the hope that Isaiah is expressing? To us, or that's the chapter heading, <laughs> nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephalti. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of shadow, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you. As people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice while dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be the fuel for the fire. 
For to us, a child is given. To us, or to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on to forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what's going on here? This is quite an interesting and broad passage, but what's really going on here? Well, Isaiah is pointing to a moment of hope inside the judgment. And to me, there's two types of hope actually at work throughout all of Isaiah, but also in this passage specifically. There is implicit and explicit hope, or present and future hope. What do I mean by that? Well, throughout this whole proclamation, Isaiah is expressing this judgment that is going to come, the darkness that they are going to enter into. He is looking forward and seeing how God is going to act and how God is aware of everything that is going to happen. And this highlights a very specific, subtle thing that isn't quite said all the way through, and it's this, God is aware of all of this. God is not surprised by any of this. And so Isaiah's hope in the darkness comes from this, God has not abandoned us. God is not coming. He is already here. These things will happen, and God is aware of them happening. They're not surprising. And he does something really unique and beautiful. In verse 2, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And here's the odd thing. Isaiah here is actually pointing forward. He is talking about a later moment, but he's using past tense language. Does that make sense? That's, that's odd, right? Because he's looking at a moment when Israel will have gone through the darkness and seen this great light, but he talks about it in past language because to him, it's an assured moment. And he does this three times. First, he does it there in verse 2, and then 3 and 4, he follows it up. He says in verse 3, um, and I did not write that down. In verse 3, he says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy as they rejoiced before you. He is saying you have enlarged their nation at a very moment where their nation is being reduced. The Assyrians are coming in, breaking apart their nation, and carting them off to a foreign land. And yet, he says, you have enlarged the nation. He's looking forward, seeing this moment, but talking about it in past tense language because to him, it's assured what's going to happen. God is working in all of this. He describes these future events with such trust in God and hope that God will work in all these things. And this isn't optimism. It's not the, what our culture says of, oh, everything will be all right in the end. No, it's God will do these things. These things will occur within us. And so this implicit hope is a deep, heavy reliance on the trust that God is here in all of this. And this can be so hard from our limited perspectives. In our prayers, we pray as though God is not aware of what is happening, or we invite him, God, come into this. We should much more be aware God is here in this moment. 
So I want to actually take just a moment and address us as a church in our very specific moment. If you've been traveling with St. Pete's, the past three months have been challenging and dislocating and disruptive. We haven't been sure of the path forward. There's been uncertainty and confusion and frustration. But I want to gently and lovingly remind us, none of this is a surprise to God. None of this, none of what has happened in our church is surprising. At no point did God say, I need to recalculate. God has been here in all of this, this whole time. This church is his church. We are his people. He loves us and will guide us through this whole storm that we feel like we have been in. As I was reading through Isaiah, I came across a passage, um, chapter 43, verse 19, which Danielle also read. And I'll read it one more time because it's been a huge source of hope for me during these past couple weeks. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. When challenges happen in church, they can feel so disrupting because church is often our, our, our stream in the desert. But when it dries up or when it goes through those moments, it can be so worrying. But God has this promise, I will lead and guide you through even those moments. And so to Isaiah, there is this implicit hope. God holds all things and is guiding all things and is leading all things. None of this is a surprise to God. So lean into that hope. And then there's the explicit hope to Isaiah. This actual pointing forward, not only is God in this, not abandoning them, not surprised by them, but God has a plan to bless the people of Israel and through the people of Israel to bless the world. Isaiah announces one day a king will come. He will institute a kingdom of eternal peace. Part of the dislocating nature of the exile for the people of Israel was that they were ending their line of kings, ending their leaders and life as they knew it. But then Isaiah looks at this future moment, this future king, and he says, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor is not a word for a therapist. It's like a military strategist or a planner, maybe an urban developer today, someone who thinks well of those future decisions. He will be called Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And these are beautiful titles of a king who will come and lead Israel after the exile. And this is, of course, not just any king, because at one point, nestled in there, he says, he will be called Mighty God. This child that comes to help Israel, to lead Israel into this eternal kingdom, is the very embodiment of God. And I mean, that's such a, a beautiful vision of hope, this true king, this eternal kingdom. And of course, when we read the New Testament with post, or when we read the Bible with post-New Testament eyes, we see clearly these images are of Jesus, right? All the biblical, uh, the gospel writers are saying again and again, this is how Isaiah was pointing to Jesus. This is how Jesus is that king. And that can be so beautiful. That's why we reflect on Advent year in and year out. Hope has arrived. But there's something really unique going on because Isaiah goes forward and he says, he, this King Jesus, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. 
from that time on to forever. On to forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom into eternity. Which may make us scratch our heads for a moment because if you know the story of Jesus, well, he died. And though he ascended, we look around at the world and we say, is this really the kingdom you're leading? War, violence, strife, poverty, is this the kingdom you were talking about? In Isaiah chapter 11, he speaks of this same future kingdom with beautiful and grand language. He describes the messianic figure again, and then right following the messianic figure comes another vision of this kingdom. He says, the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The infant will play near the cobra's nest. The young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy. On my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Repeatedly, through Isaiah's proclamation, he brings up this messianic figure, this future king, and then it always follows about this eternal kingdom. But I don't see these visions yet. I have not seen lambs lying down with wolves. And that leaves us with either two options. First, Isaiah was totally wrong. That will never happen. These idyllic visions were nothing more than hopeful fantasies in poetic language. Or these, these visions, this hope of this future kingdom has not yet come to pass. And of course, this is what the scriptures are ultimately claiming. Jesus was the first glimpse of what is to come. We are between two advents, Jesus and this future kingdom coming. The Apostle Paul, he refers to Jesus as the first fruits of salvation, the first fruits of that new creation, that eternal kingdom. And this brings up something so vital in Isaiah's hope in the darkness. Isaiah gives this word, to a people who are about to go into exile, who are about to face 70 years of dislocation. And then they are going to come home. But the Messiah, Jesus, does not come for several hundred years. That means they had a hope, a future vision of a messianic figure who would come, and they would not taste it in their lifetime. Generation after generation, they hoped, but never got to taste it for themselves. And that's a tough pill to swallow, and it's wild to come up here and talk about hope, but say, it is a hope you most likely will not taste in your lifetime. But it brings up such an important promise in Scripture and in faith, and I think one that we have forgone talking about well in the church across North America this life is not the end. That's part of the hope here in Isaiah. But in an, in an effort to be relevant to our culture and our world, and in order to focus on the problems ahead of us, we have often stopped talking about heaven. We have stopped talking about that future kingdom and future resurrection. We try to live out this lie of progress that we can make this world our utopia right here and now. But we most likely in this life will not taste that future hope that we are waiting for. So we wait like people in exile, hoping and waiting for that day when that future hope will arrive. 
but we wait with assurance and trust because we have seen the first fruits in Jesus. I came across um, this writing in, in N.T. Wright from, um, in the book Surprised by Hope, and he gives this beautiful vision. He says, heaven, uh, where am I? He says, heaven is the place where God is storing up the future. Heaven is the place where God is storing up the future. And if that's the case, then what happened at Christmas is actually a paradox of time. Because the future broke forth into the here and now in Jesus. And so we wait in longing expectation for that future hope that God has stored up. We wait for the day where that kingdom will come, knowing that we won't taste it in this life, but that this life is not the end. And we can trust in it because we have seen the first fruits of new creation in Jesus. So as we enter into a time of Advent, we look back at Jesus with, with nostalgia, with longing, with desire for that holy night. But by looking back, we are in fact looking forward to that future kingdom. Today we live between two Christmases, two arrivals, two comings of Jesus. We remember the night in which Jesus was born. We celebrate that the king has come, but we wait. We wait in exile. We wait in the darkness. The day when there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more war. And as we wait, we hope to live in a way that points to Christ in that future kingdom. And that kind of at moments can seem hopeless. And yet, we look again and again at Jesus to be our source of hope. So when you hear Christmas music playing in the malls, rejoice. The king has been born. The king has come. God is with us. But when you hear of war in the Ukraine, when women cry out in Iran, or when you sit around your Christmas tables and there are open seats for people who are no longer there, Cry out. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Cry out. It's upsetting. It's frustrating. Lord, when will you come? But we sit with both an implicit and explicit hope. We know God is here in all of this. He has not abandoned us. He will provide streams of water in the wilderness. And that gives me hope. Let me pray.